Well, if you've got a copy of God's Word with you this morning, let's turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and while you're finding the place, let me thank Chris for his words of welcome. It's a joy to be back with you in the Grange and to stand in for your pastor. Many of you know that he's a great friend of mine, and he texted me last night to say that he'd be tuning in this morning, so there's no pressure that way. But it is a joy to be with you. And we wish him and Lucy God's richest blessings in the days that lie ahead for them as a couple and as well as a church family here. I know you'll make Lucy more than welcome. Acts 6, please, this morning. I want us to look at this character of Stephen this morning, a great man and the first martyr of the church. And we'll commence to read, please, at verse 1. Acts 6, verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. The word of God increased. The number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up a false witness which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his own inspired word. Let's just come before the Lord and ask for his blessing as we come to the proclamation of the word. Father, we thank you this morning for another opportunity to gather with your people in your house on your day around your word. And Father, we need you to speak to each one of us this morning through the Holy Spirit, and our prayer would be, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. We ask these things in the Saviour's name. Amen. Tom Landry was probably the most famous and high-regarded coaches of all time within the American Football League. For many years he was the coach of the Dallas Cowboys and had an outstanding record within his sport. But not only was he a great sportsman, he was also a dedicated Christian who served on the board of the Dallas Theological Seminary. One day that board were meeting to discuss 
what it really takes for a man or a woman or a young person to go into the ministry or indeed out to the mission field. Landry remarked that whenever the Dallas Cowboys were drafting in their men, they looked for five things. But the first thing that was imperative, the first thing they looked for was a man or a woman of character. No matter how good the individual was on a sporting basis, if they lacked character, they were out, no exceptions. It was J.P. Morgan who said that a man's best collateral is his character. Well, whenever we come to Acts chapter 6 this morning, we're coming to look at a man called Stephen, a man who had tremendous character. You know that he was a man that lived a short life, but he was a man that has left a less lasting legacy upon the pages of Scripture. Perhaps in the Acts of the Apostles, he's perhaps maybe uh, an overlooked character, for after all, the Acts of the Apostles has the great giants of the faith within it. You remember the start of the book of Acts, it's dominated by Simon Peter, that great fisherman who the Lord took and really molded him into a solid rock. And then in chapter 7 we see Saul first mentioned, and you know that he becomes the Apostle Paul. And we read of his testimony and his subsequent ministry from Acts chapter 9 onwards. But here in the middle, bridging that gap between the spiritual giants, is this man Stephen. He is himself a giant who ministered in his day and generation, a man who God had for the hour, and he ministered to a very specific group of people. You see, Peter ministered primarily to the Jewish people that were born and bred within the land of Palestine. And then you know that the Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But Stephen's brief ministry was mainly to Jews that were from Gentile lands, people that were born outside of the land of Palestine. He was given a very specific ministry, a very brief ministry, but it was a ministry that was essential in God's plan for evangelism. For of course, it was Stephen's ministry and martyrdom that catapulted the early church out of Jerusalem into the ends of the world, and thus the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the Roman Empire. So we're coming to look at a very significant character this morning. Now whenever we come to Acts chapter 6, we need to remember that God was moving in a mighty way. He was blessing this early church numerically and spiritually in a tremendous way. You remember that on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and he preached a mighty message. That day out of that great crowd, 3,000 people stepped out of the multitude and therefore began the early church. Shortly after that, another 2,000 were added to the church. And Acts 5 records that a great many believers were added to the Lord. These were real days of spiritual blessing. God was pouring out his hand in mighty blessing in this early church. And in chapter 6 verse 1 we read, And in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied. There was exponential church growth. And you know that whenever God starts to bless, that Satan starts to blast. Satan starts to scheme to disrupt the work of God. And that was the case here in this early church in Jerusalem. For look what's happening there in verse 1. There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected 
in the daily ministration. These Grecians that Luke speaks of here in verse 1, they're what are commonly known as Hellenistic Jews. You see, in the day of Pentecost, those out of that 3,000 that were converted, they were all of the house of Israel. They were all converted Jews. But there were two main people groups that day. There were the Hebrews, that was the Jews that were born inside the land of Palestine. And then there was the Hellenistic Jews, those Jews that were born outside of the land of Palestine. They were born in places where the Greek language was the language of the day. In other words, there were Greek-speaking Jews. They had many customs that were alien to these Hebrew Jews that were born and bred in the land. You know that the Hebrews, that they were very strict, they were very rigid in their observance of the law of the Pharisees. And in reality, they looked down their noses at these Hellenistic Jews. So snobbery came in to the early church. And the Hellenists, well, they, in turn, they looked at these Hebrews and said, well, you guys are, are legalists. Yous are too narrow-minded. Yous are too self-centered. And so there was division in this early church. Satan's strategy is always to split the church of Jesus Christ. But Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Things have come to a head in this new church of Jerusalem. There was a perception at least that these Hellenistic widows were neglected when it came to the daily ministration. Whenever the Hellenists received one loaf of bread, the Hebrews were getting two. And so there's a problem that is posed in this early church. And Stephen steps on to the scene at a crucial moment in the life of this church at Jerusalem. You see, the apostles, they were being pulled this way and that way. And they were involved in things that really were a distraction to their ministry. That was a problem that needed solved. For look in verse 2, the statement that the apostles made. It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve him. In other words, they're saying, God has given us a great ministry here in Jerusalem to minister the word, to be in prayer, and we're going to get behind the study of God's word and give ourselves to prayer because for too long we've been busy doing other good things, but it has taken us away from the very best thing. And so the result is that seven men were chosen to administer the affairs of this early church. Many, in fact, believe these to be the first deacons. And Stephen was chosen to be one of the, these men for this practical office. And you'll see at the end of verse 2 that his primary task, his initial task, was to wait upon the table. Now I want you to notice just very quickly how these men were chosen this morning. Because this is important. Look with me at verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you. Among you. That speaks to me this morning about identification. These Christians at Jerusalem, they had identified themselves with the local church. Yes, they had been saved by grace and they were made part of the church of God, that worldwide fellowship of believers. But here we're told that they are identifiable with the local church. The apostles say, look ye out among you. I don't need to tell you that in today's post-COVID age, there are many Christians who don't identify themselves with the local assembly of God's people. 
course, there are Christians who attend a fellowship, but they're not identified with the assembly. They're not under the submission of the pastor and the elders. But here, the apostles make it very clear that they're to look out from among the assembly, the identifiable assembly. And if you look at the New Testament pattern, you'll see that the pattern is to believe, to be baptized, and then to be added to the local assembly. In other words, church membership is essential. wonder this morning, have you personally followed that pattern? Yes, you're saved this morning, and praise God for it. But have you obeyed the Lord in the waters of baptism? If you have, have you been added to the assembly? You see, that's the New Testament pattern. And then amongst these, the membership here in this church, seven men at the church in Jerusalem were chosen out for this special ministry. You notice it's seven men. It's not seven persons. Seven men. See, the office of the deacon, as it is with the elder, is exclusively to be occupied by a meal in God's divine order. And verse 5 tells us that this solution to the whole problem, it pleased the whole multitude. This solution that was posed, it was an agreeable resolution, not only to one wee group within the church, not only to one sect, but to the Hellenists and to the Hebrews. Everyone was satisfied with this, and Stephen is one of these early deacons. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the character of the men that were chosen. For verse 3 tells us the criteria that was used to select these seven men. Look at it there in verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. The first thing that we notice there is that Stephen is a man of honest report. He's a man of a fair reputation. Here's a man, and he has integrity in all that he does. Whether that's in the church business, whether that's in his secular business, his hobbies, whatever it is, the entirety of his life can be summed up as a man with honest report. Of course, that's one of the criteria that Paul gave to Timothy whenever he gave the qualification for the elder in 1 Timothy 3 and 7. It says, moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, that's outside the church, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And here's Stephen, and he's a man that's well respected. He has a good reputation among those that are within and without of this early church. In his secular life, he rubs shoulders with people that only had good things really to say about Stephen. And whatever he was involved in, people couldn't say or lay an accusation that was true against Brother Stephen. I don't know about you, but today in our day and age, that's so important for you and I as witnesses of God. That we are people of honest report. Of course, the accuser of the brethren can come and he tries to ruin God's men and God's people's reputation with unfounded slurs. With some false accusation. But as God's people this morning, we ought to keep ourselves as people of honest report in all of our dealings. Not just on a Sunday morning whenever we come with the rest of the Christians into the church. But what about Monday morning whenever we go out into the workplace? What about on Saturday morning whenever we're in the coffee shop or we're at the kids' sports game? 
I wonder can people point to you and point to me and say, yes, he's a man of honest report. He's a true Christian. He talks the talk, but he also walks the walk. How sad it is whenever uh, reputations can be tarnished with accusations that do turn out to be true. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I did work for him, but he never paid me. Or he was in somewhere that he shouldn't have been. He told a joke that he shouldn't have told. It's important that we have that reputation among not only those within the church and outside of the church, but especially before our God. Who knows our hearts this morning? Who knows the deepest recesses of your heart and my heart? And the psalmist could say that thou hast searched me and known me. He knows our thoughts from afar this morning. I wonder does he see a man and a woman or a young person of honest report. Stephen was such a person, a man of integrity, to handle the administrative affairs for the assembly. But not only was he a man of honest report, look again, he's also a man that is full of the Holy Ghost. Now that's not describing those that are empowered with those extraordinary signs that the early church had of the Holy Ghost. Although we find out later that Stephen was such a man. But what this phrase denotes and describes is someone whose ordinary life is evident, evidently under the control of God. Those that have yielded their entirety of their life to the Lordship of Christ. Those that are growing day by day through the Spirit. Those that are being guided by the Holy Spirit. And Stephen was such a man. If you go over to Acts chapter 7, you'll see one of Stephen's most famous sermons. It's a long sermon, but it's a tremendous sermon. And of course it was God, the Holy Spirit, that enabled him to stand before the council that day and give such a great exposition. But Dr. Luke says that Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost. Now remember here for a wee minute that Stephen, he wasn't an elder. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't a pastor. He's what you and I would call the common five-eight. But here's a man, and the scriptures record that he's full of the Holy Ghost. Not a lovely testimony. Isn't it interesting that Stephen and Barnabas, they bear this distinction of being full of the Holy Ghost? See, the Bible speaks to us about being full of all sorts of things. Romans 3.14 speaks to us about being full of bitterness. Job 10, full of confusion. These are things that aren't good. They drip with like depravity and evil. But yet here's a man of God who's been saved from all of those things. And he's full of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost constantly fills Stephen. That tells me that God had constant control of Stephen's life. Let me ask you this morning, what's got control of you and me? Is it the Holy Ghost? Does your life and my life exude a life that is under control of God? And do we bear the fruits? Do we bear the evidences of that? You see, as Christians this morning, God's plan for your life and my life is that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not something that's just reserved for spiritual elitists. 
This is for you and I as everyday Christians, walking ordinary Christian lives in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. It's available to you and I this morning, if only we'll yield to it. One night a group of pastors were debating about whether they should invite D.L. Moody to come and do a series of meetings for them. And one pastor was adamantly opposed to Moody. And he got up in the meeting and said, why should we invite D.L. Moody? Does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? Well, the room fell silent until one old wise man stood up and said, no, D.L. Moody doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. But I'll tell you this. The Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. Has the Holy Spirit got a monopoly on your life, on mine, in whatever ministry that you are involved in? Is it Spirit-filled? He had all of Stephen. So Stephen's a man of honest report. He's a man full of the Holy Spirit. But notice again in verse 3, he's a man that is full of wisdom. Now it's interesting that whenever the Bible speaks about wisdom, it doesn't refer to our intellect or our IQ. Thank God for that. I've no doubt that Stephen was a clued-in man. I've no doubt that he was good with the finances within the church and the practical things within the assembly. But whenever the scriptures speak about being full of wisdom, we're really speaking about applying the scriptures to our everyday lives, which make one wise. Alistair Begg put it like this, Wisdom is learning to live God's way in God's world. I like that. Wisdom is learning to live God's way in God's world. See, God has given us the divine blueprint of how we're to live our lives in this world. James exhorts us not only to be hearers of the word, but to be doers also. And Stephen was a man who was wise in the scriptures. He had a deep insight into the scriptures, and he applied what he had learned in his quiet time and in his teaching to his everyday life. Here was a man and he knew that the fear of God was the beginning of wisdom. And that knowledge that he accumulated through the word of God, being applied by the spirit of God, he put it into practice in his life and he thus became a wise person. These days in which we live in, do you and I not sometimes feel a wee bit deficient whenever it comes to wisdom? I don't think anybody here is going to stand up and go, yeah, I've got this wisdom thing all sorted out. There are situations in your life and in my life, and especially in the culture in which we live in, that we become overwhelmed. We have this deep-seated feeling of insufficiency in how to deal with situations and circumstances that come upon us. Yet the good news for us this morning is that if we lack wisdom, just like Stephen, and we know that we do lack wisdom, you know what James 1 and 5 says? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. It's not a wonderfully simple formula. If we lack it, simply ask of God. Because he gives it to us in abundance and he doesn't scold us whenever we come to ask him for it. He doesn't withhold it from us because our God is a God who giveth and giveth and giveth again. He's a man full of wisdom. Now cast your eye down to verse 5. For not only is a man of honest report, a man full of the Holy Ghost and a man full of wisdom. But notice in verse 5, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Man full of faith. 
Or better translated, someone that is committed to faithfulness. Meant whenever someone had committed to a vow or a commitment that they had already made, that they followed through on. Stephen was committed to the work of Christ. Stephen was committed to the cause of Christ. He was committed to the followers of Christ. He had committed us all to the person of Christ. Stephen was a faithful man. We see that he served God faithfully. And he realized that he could serve God faithfully because he had a God that was faithful and true to him. He could say, what a faithful God have I, faithful in every way. He believed everything God said about himself. He obeyed the commands of Scripture and he left everything else with his God. Of course, he was a man that was saved by faith. Now he's exercising faith in the everyday trials of life and he's a man that is full of faith. You remember what the writer to the Hebrews could say? Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Let me ask you this morning, how's your faith? I mean, honestly, yes, we're saved by grace through faith in our conversion. We're trusting in the finished work of Christ this morning. But whenever we come to those circumstances in life that trouble us, or as we come to prayer, how do we pray? Do we really pray in faith? Praying in faith for a broken relationship that seems unfixable by human standards? Praying with faith for that unsaved loved one that you've prayed for for years and they feel like a lost cause. Praying with faith for your children and your grandchildren. Praying in faith. Why? Because we come to a faithful God who not only hears, but also answers our prayers. The Apostle Paul, whenever he wrote to young Timothy, he was on death row. You know what he said? If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. What a privilege it is for us to come this morning to worship a God who is faithful. How much of a privilege is it to come on a Wednesday night for a, to a God who is faithful and answers our prayers? Stephen was a man of faith, full of faith. But he was also someone who was powerful. Powerful because of the wonders that he performed. You see, through Stephen, God wrought miracles. God was marking Stephen out as one of his special messengers, even though he wasn't an apostle. In the New Testament times, in the early church, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, and the apostles, they were the only ones that performed miracles. That tells me something, that Stephen was faithful in the small things. God rewarded him openly with bigger things. That's a very biblical principle, you know. Luke 16.10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. See, God rewards those that are faithful to him. God's business and God's currency, he doesn't call you and I to success. He doesn't call us to fame. You know what he calls us to this morning? Faithfulness. He rewards those that are faithful to him. And what a wonderful prospect it will be to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, whenever our time of service is through. I wonder, will we hear that, well done? I have a little plaque in my desk and it says this, you'll only hear the well done if you've done well. Will we have done well? Stephen was a man of character. 
I wonder as you look at this character of Stephen this morning, how you and I measure up. Because in Stephen I see a man that points us to Christ. He's so many Christ-like characteristics. He's a man that is being conformed into the image of God day by day. He's being sanctified through his truth because he knows his word is truth. He's putting that truth into practice in his everyday life. Man of character. But come with me and look at verse 9 because I want you to see here the confrontation with the man. Because here, this group, they're, they're so alarmed at the power and the effectiveness of Stephen that we read in verse 9, then there are those certain of the synagogue which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia disputing with Stephen. Now you know that as a good Jew, Stephen would have been at the synagogue up there in the Sabbath. That was the custom for the Jewish community ever since the time of the Babylonian captivity. As exiles, they were cut off from accessing the temple for worship, and so the synagogue was the primary place of worship. And look here, he has five synagogues that are in view here in verse 9. There's that of the Libertines, that's of those Hellenistic Jews. Then there were the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and then there was Cilicia and Asia, which are Roman provinces in Asia Minor at that time. It's an interesting little side note there that Tarsus was located in Cilicia. Of course, you know, one of the greatest scholars that ever came from there was a man from Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus. It's likely, highly likely that he was involved in this confrontation with Stephen, for he, uh, he consented to the execution of Stephen. Point is, though, that Stephen was not only a faithful deacon, but he was also someone who contended for the faith. You see, that little word disputing there in verse 9, it doesn't mean to quarrel. It's really referring to a, a formal debate, something that you see John Lennox or David Gooding or Ken Ham engaged in. No doubt the, the debate had centred around the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord. And we know later on that Stephen really accused his accusers of murdering their Messiah. He stated that Christ was the fulfilment of the Old Testament prophecies. That he is risen, that he's exalted, that he's ascended into heaven. And it really roused these folks to whom he was speaking to. For look at the reaction down in verse 10. Stephen won the debate, you see. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now here's Stephen. Can you imagine the scene? It's one against many. He's outnumbered by human standards. But he knows, just as John Knox knew, that one plus God always equals a majority, irrespective of the number on the opposing side. Human reasoning of these highly educated men was no match for the divinely given wisdom of Stephen. They're so infuriated at what Stephen has said to them that they bring these trumped up charges against him in verse 11. Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. You see, here's men, and they see God's man as a threat. Just as they would see the Apostle Paul as a threat later in the book of Acts. Because here was a man of such character. Here was a man of such zeal for God. And someone like that could do serious damage to their old dead Pharisaical religion. 
After witnessing him win, slam dunk the argument. There's a serious concern here from the Jews. And they want to get rid of Stephen no matter what, what they trump up charges against him. They bring a charge of blasphemy. Anybody who was guilty of a charge of blasphemy was stoned to death under the old Jewish law. They needed to get rid of this man and they bring up a charge of blasphemy. Of course it was a made up charge. They resorted to underhand tactics. They couldn't outsmart him. They couldn't outshout him. So they bribed witnesses against him to come and testify against Stephen. Now do you see the similarities again there in the tactics that they used against Christ? I mean they couldn't find any witnesses against the Lord Jesus. Some did come with their stories but it never matched. And you needed two witnesses with their story in line to get the conviction. And now they suborn witnesses. They bribe the witnesses. Stephen now is as good as dead. Verse 12 tells us that there's an agitation among the crowd at the synagogue. You see, before this, they were afraid to lay hands on any of God's people. They feared the people. They feared the reaction of the people. But now the false witness has come. The rumours are starting to circulate about Stephen and no one's going to protect him. And so in the middle of it all, this they conjole innocent Stephen and they manhandled him and they brought him before the council in verse 12. That council, you know, is the Sanhedrin. It's the top court of jury. You might remember that at this time the Jews were under Roman rule. They were a conquered people. And so the Romans were responsible for law and order. And well, if the Jews wanted to have their own weird religious court, well, that that was fine as long as they didn't threaten law and order. They did need the Romans to come in if they were going to execute. Of course, that's why Jesus passed through the Jewish and the Roman trials. But this is where Stephen is standing. He's in in the middle of the finest of minds of Judaism. They knew rightly that the charges were trumped up. The same way Pilate and everybody else knew that day that the charges were trumped up against Jesus. And they had bribed a couple of liars. And here's the misrepresentation here in full view because it seems like Stephen had quoted the words of Christ whenever he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course the Lord Jesus was speaking about his body as being in the temple. He was prophesying about his own death and resurrection, the very heart of the gospel message. But here the Sanhedrin, they make Stephen out to be some sort of insurrectionist. They're distorting the message that Stephen has preached. You see, Stephen was misunderstood. But Stephen had a saviour who was misunderstood and he knew all about it. Of course, he was accused uh, with false witnesses. He had raised the anger of the Sanhedrin. Christ knew what it was about, what it was like to suffer unjustly, the just for the unjust. Christ understood Stephen's feelings as he stood before the Sanhedrin. One of the most comforting verses, I think, in the, the Scriptures is in Hebrews: "For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities." And here's Stephen standing in his most difficult moment so far. And Christ understands Stephen's predicament so well. He also understands your predicament. He also understands my predicament this morning. He knows all about it. 
I wonder have people been tearing you apart by their words and their attitudes. Christ knows all about it. What about the exaggeration of friends and those that you thought would understand? The Savior knows all about it. Dear friend, whatever you're going through, whatever storm is battling your life, Christ knows all about it. More than that, he cares all about it. And he says, cast all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. The character of the man, the confrontation of the man. But look very quickly and finally with me at verse 15 this morning. I want you to see the countenance of the man. All that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Now, can you imagine the scene? I wish someone had a picture of Stephen standing before the council. He's listening to all these false accusations going on around him. As he looks around, he sees expressions of rage and ridicule and indignation on the faces of his accusers. Yet here's a man in the middle of all that and he has a radiant countenance. He's full of love, full of trust, full of peace and confidence. He's undisturbed by all the bitter things that were being said. His heart wasn't filled with malice because of their hatred towards him. But he was filled with joy. Because he, counted, he was counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. He was Christ's faithful servant. In that moment, Christ's, his Christ-like character really radiated from him. I can't understand how those on that Sanhedrin that day weren't impressed. How they weren't astounded. How they weren't convicted at the countenance of this man. Among the whole sham, here's a man that's facing certain death. And his countenance is shining. It's radiant. Here's a man that's walking so close to his God. That it's seen in his countenance. What a rebuke that must have been to those boys that were accusing Stephen of blaspheming Moses. Wasn't Moses one that had a shining face? You remember whenever Moses came down from Mount Sinai in Exodus uh, 34. We're told that his face while he talked with him shone. It's as though God was saying. This man Stephen he's not against Moses. He's just like Moses. He's my faithful servant. All that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. What was Stephen's secret? It was a life that was lived so close to God. He was a man like Paul and his, and his constant prayer was that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. What an impact Stephen's life and ministry had even beyond his martyrdom. And how God used this mighty servant of God, a man of character. May God help you and I to be such people in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, in the week that lies ahead. May we be marked with character. And in every aspect of our lives, in every trial, in every tribulation, may our lives point to the Saviour, the one who knows about what we're going through. And may our lives be glorious to the name of Christ this morning. Let's just take a wee moment and bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your precious word to our hearts this morning. And we thank you for this example of this man, Stephen, and how so much he points us to the character of Christ.
And Father, we do ask that as God's people this morning, that we would put the word of God into practice and as we leave here this morning, that the Spirit of God would take that word of God and we would apply it to our hearts and our lives in the week that lies ahead and that we would glorify you in all walks of life. And Father, we pray especially this morning for those that are going through difficult times. Some this morning that have burdens on their heart that no one else knows about. But Father, we thank you that you're touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You know all about it. And we thank you that you care for each one of us individually this morning. And that we can come to you and we can cast our burden upon the Lord knowing that you will sustain us. So Father, bless those that must leave us at this time. Be with us as we come around your table. May that very pre- the presence of God be made manifest in our midst as we come around the table to remember the Lord in his own appointed way. So be with us, we pray. In the Saviour's name we ask it. Amen.